After criticizing God for his long life of woe, Job praises the Lord for his goodness. Job's fortunes are immediately restored, and the rest of his life demonstrates God's favor. A lesson from the book of Job. Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and that no, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and by now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had uh, prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. Then there came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hopuk. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Please stand as you're able and sing with us Psalm 34, found on page 4 of your service booklet. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant had to be offered again and again. But in Christ, the one eternal sacrifice is offered to God in heaven. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able from, for all time to save those who approach God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints high priests, those who are subject to weakness. But the world of the oath, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus and his disciples came to Jericho, and as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Bill and I were joking before the service um, about this reading from Job. On our electronic bulletin board um, this week, we've been talking about Job, and and none none of us like the prose ending of the book of Job. It sort of sells, sells out the book. I talked a little bit about how the book opens with this prose opening um, and said it was sort of like a bar joke. There was this guy, Job, from Uz, and he had everything, 3,000 camels and and all of the rest of it. And then one day, bam, it's all gone. Um, and, And we typically sort of ask the question, why would God let Satan do that to Job? Well, the point is to set up the rest of the book, um, these things happen. We get into the book and Job's three friends try and convince him that surely he must have sinned. That's why God is doing this to him. And Job says, no, I insist on my righteousness. And if I were in the presence of God, I would make my case. And last week, God showed up and said, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I sank the pedestals on which it stands. Do you know these things? Can you make it rain? And Job today says, I had heard of you before with my ear, but now I have seen with my eyes. I sit in dust and ashes and repent. I said that that was part of my favorite passage in Scripture. 
reminding us that we are not at the center of the picture. Um, Job is answering, the book of Job is answering the question, why would God punish us as the people were sitting there in exile wondering why did God do this to us and, and their prophets were saying, well, God must be punishing us. The book of Job says, no, it's awfully arrogant of us to think that any sin of ours would warrant this kind of punishment from God. It's awfully arrogant of Job's friends to think that there is anything Job could have done that would cause God to come and squish him like a bug. No, it doesn't happen that way. And that's a wonderful thing. Whenever I'm feeling sort of picked on by God, to be reminded, get yourself out of the middle of the picture. Look at the whole picture. Look at the universe. Can you do any of this stuff? No, the sun will come up tomorrow. Things aren't as bad as you're making them out to be. And then, after that wonderful ending, we get this, and he had it twice as good as he had it before. We noticed that the last time 3,000 camels was a, was a ridiculous number of camels. Nobody has 3,000 camels. 6,000 camels now he has? Come on. He lives 140 years. He has seven new children. I don't think so. So I'm kind of sorry that the book ends that way. I much prefer the poetic ending to this, um, to this he gets it all back ending. In his stewardship talk last week, John came up and, and said, why do we give... Um, we don't give because we think of God as a casino, like the prosperity gospel people. You know, I give my dollar, I get $10 back. Um, this ending from Job would let us think that that's why we give. That's why we're faithful people, because then God will give us all of this wonderful stuff. That's the prosperity gospel, and I don't like it. God is not a casino, as John pointed out. So why do we give? Today is the day we're going to collect commitment cards. Why do we give? We come to the story of blind Bartimaeus, and if you know me, you know this is my favorite story in the Bible. I want the crowd's words to Bartimaeus on my grave marker. Tharse egire phonese. Take heart, be resurrected, he's calling you. Wouldn't that be wonderful on your grave? Take heart, rise up, he calls you. We've been reading this long arc in, John, in Mark's Gospel about power. Peter made his confession of the Christ, and Jesus begins to say to him, I will have to go up to Jerusalem and suffer. Peter takes him aside and says, God forbid it, this will never happen to you. And so Jesus has to rebuke him, get behind me, Satan. They go up on the mountaintop, and Jesus is there manifested in all of his glory. Peter wants to stay there. They come down from the mountain, and the disciples are unable to cast out a demon. Um, he's walking with them on the road, predicts his passion again, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. So he takes a child and sets the child in their midst and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and receives the one who sent me. There's another guy casting out demons, the very thing that they weren't able to do, and they try and prevent him. They want to control that power. And he says, don't. Whoever is not against us is for us. The Pharisees come and argue with him about power in the law. Is it permitted to divorce one's wife? Again, he takes a child and sets the child in their midst and says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom as a child will not enter it. Power, it turns out, is on the fringes. 
The rich young man comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wants power for himself to inherit. And Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, you lack one thing. He has many things, but Jesus says you lack one thing. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. He goes away sad because he has many things. And then last week, James and John come to Jesus and say, we want you to do us a favor. He says, what would you have me do for you? Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, when you come in glory. And he says, I can't do it. It's been granted already. And he's talking, of course, about the thief crucified on his right and his left. Can you do that? Power, it turns out, is not at the king's table, but on the fringes. And then today, the story of Bartimaeus, which is wrapping up this whole long arc in Mark's gospel. So we have to pay very close attention to it. Bartimaeus is a beggar. He has nothing. He's sitting at the edge of the road. Think of how dusty that would have been with that great crowd going by. And the noise off to the edges. And he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's the only person in Mark's gospel to use that title for Jesus, son of David. He sees Jesus as king, something the disciples failed to do right through to the end. So he sees more clearly than they do. He has nothing. He's the opposite of the rich young man. He sees. He's the opposite of the disciples. The crowd tells him to be quiet. Shush, you have nothing to offer. And he cries out all the louder, Son of David, doesn't use the word Jesus this time, just Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops, doesn't call him, but says to the crowd, you call him. And they say, take heart, rise up, he calls you. And then in the Greek it says he throws off his clothes. We say he throws off his outer garment because we don't want to picture him standing there naked on the road. But it's like a baptism. He throws off his robe. He comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Exactly the question that he asked James and John, word for word. What do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left. And he says, my teacher, Rabuni. That's a word that only occurs one other time in the New Testament when Mary recognizes the risen Jesus in the garden of the resurrection. He sees the risen Jesus that I might see again. Jesus doesn't spit on the ground, doesn't make clay, doesn't rub it on his eyes, doesn't touch his eyes, doesn't do anything to him. He says, your faith has saved you. And Bartimaeus follows him on the way. The only person in Mark's gospel to do that. Follows him on the way, which is towards Jerusalem. That's where we're headed next. Why do we give? Poverty is not so much a lack of stuff as it is a lack of favor. Poverty is the inability to exchange favors with friends. Um, think about a dinner party. If I give a dinner party and inv invite you to come, 
you will then in turn invite me to a dinner party or, or pay back that favor in some other way. If I borrow your power drill, then you know that you can borrow my handsaw. And, and we build up this whole treasury of favors that we owe each other that make us members of community, that make us powerful people within community. Bartimaeus has nothing to offer. Jesus says to the rich young man, you lack one thing. Go, sell everything you have, and give it to the poor. Give it to the folks like Bartimaeus. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you will live within community. Bartimaeus doesn't have anything, but he gives everything he's got. He throws off his clothes. He comes absolutely undefended in front of Jesus and says, My teacher, he recognizes the risen Jesus, that I might see again. We give in order to see the resurrected Jesus at the heart of community. But it's dangerous. Giving is dangerous. On the electronic bulletin board, the conversation rolled around and got me to reminiscing about some time I spent in Boston at a church there when I was going to divinity school. And I volunteered for the soup and sandwich ministry on Fridays. I went every Friday and handed out soup and sandwiches. And there were about 30 people who came, almost all men, many of them drunk. Um, and I did this for three years, and so I got to know them by name as much as they would give you their real names. And, and as I would be walking through town or getting on the subway or going through the commons, they would wave at me. And that kind of, the first time it happened, was a little unnerving. Um, and then kind of got to be fun when friends would go with me. Well, who was that? Well, that was Injun Joe, you know, or, or whoever it was. And um, one of the last days I did this, there were these three Native Americans. We called them the Three Little Indians. And they were always drunk. Um, and one of them, Injun Joe, came that last day completely bloodied up. He has, was so drunk he had fallen over. Gave him his soup and his sandwich, and he said to me he wanted to go into detox. And the way we handled that was we called Pine Street Inn. Pine Street Inn was Boston's equivalent of Larry Rice. And so I called and got the guy on the phone, and he said, okay, here's what you do. You call the cops, tell him he wants to go into detox. He said, now be careful, they'll send rookies and these rookies tend to get violent with drunks, so you have to tell them you've promised this guy they won't beat him up. And then tell them you're going to call Pine Street in and make sure they didn't beat him up. He said they particularly like to beat him up if they throw, if they throw up in the back of the van. So I called about three, and about four, the cops came all this while. This man is lying in the little garden there out, out front um, on the cold ground. It's winter. His friends are waiting there with him. The cops show up, and his friends say, Oh, Joe, they're going to pinch you. They're going to pinch you. They're going to take you away. Don't let him do that. Don't let him do that. And I said, It's what he wants. Let him go. So the cops pick him up, and I tell him, I promised him you wouldn't beat him up. They load him in the van. I stayed around and called Pine Street in to make sure he got there. He got there okay. So it's now about 5 o'clock. We usually close the door at 3. I finished that up, and I said to myself, You know, Three years ago, I would have never imagined myself doing this. Never imagined myself caring for one of these crazy drunks on the streets of Boston. We give 
so that we can be members of community, so that we can build up that treasure in heaven, that, that reciprocal interchange that allows us to be powerful members of community, and so that people like Bartimaeus and Injun Joe can be members of community along with us. We give so that we can encounter the risen Jesus at the heart of community. Not so that we can win the great God casino like Job does and get 6,000 camels instead of three, but so that we can be part of a community that says to a Bartimaeus, take heart, rise up, he's calling you. Amen.